From breaking news to local stories happening where you live, this is the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Well, there is now a vaccine, and this has been approved for older adults in Canada to help fight respiratory syncytial virus. That is better known as RSV. And joining us to talk more about what this means for treating RSV and who will be eligible is Desi Lukov, scientific lead with vaccines at GSK. Desi, thank you so much for being with us. Hi, thanks, Jill, for having me. Uh, this is big news for anybody uh, who is in that age group and maybe is concerned about that. And uh, GlaxoSmithKline, again, the company behind this. So what can you tell us about how this came about and the approval of Orexv for RSV disease? Well, it's a really exciting day today, and it's really a culmination of years of research and development that have gone towards this vaccine, not only by GSK, but by a lot of researchers internationally. Um, It's a really important time, and it's based on a lot of new technology that has come about over past decades. We first learned about RSV and the virus that causes this disease back in 1955, uh, but happy that today we actually have a solution to help protect against this infection in a really particularly vulnerable population uh, in adults 60 years of age and older. And so it will be available for people in that age group, 60 years and older. How much more vulnerable is that group when we're talking about RSV, which is a pretty common virus? You're totally right. It's a really common virus, which sometimes if you think about it, it has really similar symptoms to flu. So it circulates about the same time that flu does in the fall and winter seasons. Um, And we really... um, want this for older adults to be able to have a source for protection before we go into the fall respiratory season. But if we look at RSV, it's something that everyone gets at least by the time that they're two years of age, but that infection doesn't always uh, protect them throughout their life. So reinfections are actually quite common. And that's why a vaccine is a really important solution to hopefully protect them for a little bit longer. But in Healthy adults, we usually see very mild infections, um, but in older adults, they have a greater risk of ending up with more severe disease that'll go lower into their airways and actually might lead to more serious outcomes like pneumonia, hospitalizations, and in some cases, death. Um, and there are particular populations within this older age group that um, that are at even greater risk of these outcomes, and that includes people that might have diabetes, um, COPD, asthma, so anything that affects the heart or lungs, uh, conditions that affect the heart or lungs could put you at increased risk of RSV. And what kind of a, an efficacy rate are we looking at here? And I know this has gone through the clinical trials to get to this point, but how, how well does it protect people? So in our phase three efficacy trial, the vaccine showed 82.6% uh, efficacy in preventing against lower respiratory tract disease in all adults that were 60 years of age and older in the trial. Um, and then within the subgroup that had some of those conditions that can increase the risk of severe disease, the vaccine showed about 94% efficacy. So quite high and consistent efficacy to protect older adults that are at greatest risk. I know we've talked a, a lot in the past about a vaccination against pneumonia or people in that group as well, or older adults getting a pneumonia shot. So would this be something that would be in addition to that if somebody does choose to get that as well? 
Absolutely. So any of the things that you get vaccinated for, like flu or the pneumococcal bacteria, we have solutions for those to keep you from getting really sick with those infections. But until now, we haven't had an option to prevent uh, against pneumonia that might be caused by RSV, for example. So this is a really important addition to the other vaccines that you'll get around the fall time, around the respiratory uh, uh, fall season. So it's it's a really important tool in, in your belt to keep yourself healthy through the fall and winter. And what does the vaccination look like as far as is it an injection or how many and how does that work? Great question. So it is one injection that you get in your arm, so intramuscularly, um, and it's one dose. And right now we have data to show that it'll keep you protected over two seasons, uh, but we're continuing to look at how long that will uh, that protection will last for. All right. Is it something that, that you would think then, is it something we should be looking at as far as in long-term care facilities or health facilities, as well as anybody that might be in that age group that, that is concerned about this and concerned about contracting RSV? Absolutely. So this is a really contagious virus that we saw even last season causing a lot of outbreaks in long-term care facilities. And these are groups that um, are at particular risk of these severe outcomes that can really lead to a decline in their, their functional status and their health. So it's absolutely a population we have to consider um, giving the, the option for preventing this disease. Uh, this is now approved, as you mentioned, for 60 plus in Canada. Is it approved in other countries? So it has been approved in other countries, including uh, the U.S., as well as the European Medicines Agency that has approved it in Europe, um, and the U.K. has also approved it, and we've got some submissions in other, uh, in other countries as well. Are there any potential side effects? So like all vaccines, you can expect a little bit of soreness in your arm where the injection happened um, and a little bit of maybe fatigue and headache in the first day or two after you receive the infection, uh, receive the injection. Um, but over the whole clinical trial studies that have gone on, the vaccine has been shown to be safe and tolerable. So no safety concerns to date. All right. Well, it's a, it's a very good step for anybody that is concerned, again, about RSV and is looking for this. When do you anticipate or do we know when it will start being available? Great question. So we're really happy to work um, with our regulators and with our uh company supply group to make this vaccine available ahead of the RSV season. So it generally starts in October where we really start seeing cases pick up and we're confident we'll be able to have supply available before then. Desi, thanks so much for joining us today with this latest information. Appreciate it. Thanks so much for having me. 12.35 on this Friday afternoon. Well, it is very warm and very dry in many parts of the province and Vancouver police are still investigating what they have called suspicious fires in Stanley Park. This comes at the same time the Vancouver Park Board has implemented some new water restrictions. Those go throughout the city. But this one particular fire happened on Wednesday morning. Vancouver police say they attended the fire that is suspected to be have been deliberately set. This happened near a parking lot at Second Beach and Sergeant Steve Addison spoke earlier this week saying they were unable to identify or find a suspect who had lit that fire. So that is what Vancouver police are investigating. And joining us now to talk a bit more about this is Jackie Birchall, who was in the park when that happened. Jackie, thank you so much for being here. 
Oh, you're welcome. So you were in the park on, on Wednesday when this happened. What did you see in the park? I smelt. I smelt smoke. I was walking through the Second Beach parking lot and I smelt smoke. I asked a passing woman if she could smell it too. She said she could. I asked her if she would come into the trees with me to find out where it was coming from, but she didn't want to. She said she would get help. So I walked into the trees a few meters and then I spotted a man bending over. I could just see part of him and he had smoke around his feet. So I went back parking lot for safety and called 911. Hmm. Uh, when you saw the smoke around his feet, did you see flames or anything? Or at that point, it was it had started to smoke. Yeah, there was there was there was smoke, and um, and then I then a, a park employee arrived, and I don't know if if the woman who went to get help got him or if that he got a radio call, but he appeared. And he was perfect because he was tall and young and strong. And he said, show me. And I showed him. And he challenged the man in no uncertain way. And, the man, and he said the man had a crack pipe, which is why he was lighting, you know, lighting the fire for the crack thing to get going. Hmm. So did it look like he was, because I know police have said that it was deliberately set or they believe that fire was deliberately set. Did it look like he was trying to, to set fire to the, the grass or that area or, or he was doing something else with that, that pipe and maybe that's what caught fire? I'm not sure. Um, somebody explained to me that crack smokers need a fire, need a flame. So I'm not sure because I didn't go behind the tree. First of all, the young man did. But certainly when I went behind the tree, the tree was not, the base of the tree was not on fire. And he took all his things that he had, like he had papers and the pipe and all stuff, and he fled. But I gave a very good description to the police. And actually they called me 20 minutes ago to ask me again about what he looked like. Hmm. Uh, so police arrived. So like you said, so no, they, did, they oh. didn't arrive. The police. I couldn't believe it. The police didn't arrive. Oh, OK. He, so, he, he, he got away. He just walked. Oh, so, sorry, Jackie, your phone just cut out there a bit. So sorry, take oh. me back. So so it was a park employee that arrived and, and yeah. was, was very quick to respond. So it was a park employee that that then kind of confronted this individual. Yeah. And the man took off and then the fire department arrived. And then when we were talking to the fire department, the, the man who had set the fire, who was, had walked east and then down to the seawall, started to walk back past us with his hood up. He had a hoodie on, as if we wouldn't notice him. And then he proceeded to walk east on the seawall. So the fire captain asked the two young men, there were then two young men by then from the park, to go and take his photograph. So they went and got his photograph. But when I talked to the police officer just now, they hadn't got his photograph yet. Hmm. Uh, it's interesting you, you mentioned that they took his photograph. I was curious if you had your phone with you or if you, uh, if you were, and not that you, you need to in this scenario because you never know how someone's going to react, but I was curious if you thought about taking a photo or if you took a photo. No, because I was, I was on the phone to 911 the whole time. I was talking to the fire and then they patched me through to the VPD. So I was busy talking, so I couldn't, but I, I was face-to-face -face with him, so I was able to give the VPD a very live, very accurate description of what he looked like hmm. in real time, in real time. Right, so, and, and his clothing and everything. Yeah, his clothing, his glasses, and his necklace, his, his stature, his height, his age, what he, exactly what he was wearing. 
Then what did I he? Was looking, I was looking at him while I was talking to the BPD. <laughs> did he know that you were talking to police and, and describing him to police? I, he, when he was confronted by that park employee, he, he was very sort of subservient and he sort of gathered his stuff and scuttled away. And I said to him, I am talking to the police right now, but he just scuttled away. But it was amazing to me that he then came back and walked right past us. Hmm. And, and walked right past you when you were still there with the, the fire crews? With the, with the fire crew. He walked past us and we said to the fire crew, there he goes. And uh, so that's when the ca- fire captain sent uh, the park employees on, electric, on their electric vehicle to go and take a photo of him. Hmm. Did you get the sense, did the park employees know who he was? Uh, or oh, could, no, 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 they, did, they didn't. But they were, they gave me, you know, what do you call it? Um, a fist pump for thank you very much because because we stopped him, you know. Right. Yeah, for sure. Uh, yeah, I could see how they would be very, uh, very appreciative of that. So you were talking to police and you were giving the uh, description to, yeah. to police. Yeah. Uh, what did police yeah. say to you or, or what else did they ask from you? Well, this morning they called me about 20 minutes ago. And they just asked me again what I saw and they and asked me, they reiterated what I had said on the phone and then I added more things about his description. And I think they think that the sense I got was they were looking to see a repeat fire setter. They were looking to see if he was a repeater, you know, or a one-off. Hmm. Is this an area, Jackie, that, that you are walking in quite often or that you go to? Oh, every day, every day. I'm one of those crack of dawn, <laughs> walk to the Lionsgate Bridge and back person, yeah. So that must have been, if somebody, like, you know that area very well and you go there every yes. day, that, that must have been a, a jarring when you smelled smoke. Well, not, not really. You know, last week there were two campfires on 3rd Beach at 6.30 in the morning. I couldn't believe it. The people are idiots, but but in Second Beach parking lot, there's a, you know, there's a trees and bush between the parking lot and Stanley Park Drive, and it's very dense. And over the years, I've noticed that people camp in there because once you get in there, nobody can see you, you know. Mm. So this isn't the first time you've seen a discarded campfire or come across a fire in the park. No, because you know, no, no. And also, I know the park rangers, and they tell me things, too, you know, about the fires. What have they told you, or did they tell you anything about, about this fire? Oh, no, the, no, nothing about this one. But in past years, you know, I, I remember a park ranger told me he could smell smoke, and it took him a long time because the people were so hidden, you know, they'd really bushwhacked themselves in, and so it, he had to... You know, they weren't on a trail or anything. They were, like, way off the trail. So that, that's another problem in the park, too, right? Mm-hmm. People, secre- people secreting themselves and setting up camps. I, no, exactly. And we have, uh, we've certainly talked about some fires in that park uh, previous in previous years. What are your thoughts on the park right now? With It, it is uh, so dry and, and with people using the park. Are you concerned that there could potentially be more fires? Yeah, you know, and one of the greatest things is, you know, it says no smoking in the park, and yet there are there are cigarette butts everywhere, 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 everywhere. I, you know, people, I, but yesterday I know the police department where it's, no, the fire department where it's second beach educating people. So I hope people will be more aware and will call 911 if they, if they smell, even if they just smell smoke, you know, it's so important. 
All right. Well, Jackie, I appreciate you so much coming on the show and telling us about what you witnessed and how you were involved and uh, certainly deserving of that fist bump from the, the crews that attended. Jackie, thank you so much for your time today. You're welcome. Thank you. Goodbye. Well, do you have any great ideas when it comes to innovation, specifically innovation that could revolutionize transit maintenance? Talking about maintenance when it comes to TransLink might sound very specific. However, TransLink has put out an open call. They're looking for entrepreneurs or inventors, innovators to submit their ideas that would all help the system stay well-maintained, reliable, and high-performing. And joining us to talk more about what this open call is really looking for is Shruti Joshi, who is a TransLink spokesperson. Shruti, thank you so much for being with us. Thank you, Jill, for having me. This is uh, exciting to see what kind of ideas and things are going to be coming forward. Now, this is TransLink's open call for innovation. So what is this all about? What is TransLink looking for? Uh Uh-huh. So, um, Jill, we believe that good ideas come from anyone and everyone. Um, And that's why TransLink issues an open call for innovation every year. We've been doing this for the last six years. Each open call invites submissions from the private and the public sector, from bright minds, you know, um, inventors, innovators to address a transportation-related challenge that we face as a region. Um, It's all part of of TransLink's broader plan to, you know, partner with industry leaders and you know, academics or policymakers, so that we can collaborate on some new mobility solutions that can help enhance, um, you know, um, Metro Vancouver from a transportation perspective. Which I found it interesting too, in that this call for innovation, in that it it could could see say asking passengers what would make your commute easier, what would be easier for you, or make your time on on transit perhaps more enjoyable. But I like the fact that this really goes further and goes into more kind of uh, the engineering or like you said those partnerships and things that maybe you don't think about every day. And and like you said, so this has been going on for six years. Do you have examples, mm-hmm. or or can you tell us a little bit about what kinds of things have come from previous calls? Sure. So over the last six years, um, in fact, Jill, we've uh, you know gotten about 400 great ideas across different teams. So each year we have a different team. This year the team is State of Good Repair, and we're asking for people to send in uh, ideas um, in accordance with that team. Uh, but uh, when we talk about some good examples, um, you know, uh, there have been tremendous response uh, for the past open call for innovations. For example, in 2018, when the team was seamless mobility, uh, we did announce a joint initiative with um, a few companies and came up with a shared mobility pilot, which was extremely successful. Similarly, in 2019, when the team was customer service and amenities, we also did a partnership with a company, uh, you know, which, uh, which had a smart locker type of a service. So there have been many of these ideas. Every idea is, every concept is not always very successful. But the idea here is, you know, collaboration to make sure that we have all of the bright minds thinking towards, you know, giving something a solution uh, for its various, um, you know, issues that we may have. And is it open to anyone? Do you need to have a certain background or anything like that? Or is it really anybody that's got an innovative idea? Yes, it's open to anyone, anyone who's got an open idea. But again, it depends on the team. Like I said, this year, the team is state of good repair. So if you have an idea which talks about 
predictive maintenance or talks about performance management, remote inspection and monitoring, workforce empowerment, so, you know, sustainable materials and techniques. Uh, we would, you know, welcome those ideas. So, uh, and that's an important one, too, that maybe you don't think about until you get to a transit station and, and something's broken. Maybe the escalator is not working or or the elevator is not working or, or something, and then it can throw things into chaos. So it is something I would think that, that maybe we don't think about enough, but this will get people thinking about it. Absolutely. And we have so many bright minds out there, you know, and this is such a great platform. You know, give us the idea... And, you know, when the idea for you chosen, your idea is chosen, we can collaborate with you. We can, you know, fund that idea. And together, you know, perhaps, you know, it, can, it becomes a pilot. If the pilot is successful, it fully gets integrated into the system. And you kind of touched on this, some of the past ideas and those ideas that have come forward and those proposals. And, and do we still see those, those ideas that have been integrated? Those have become part, a permanent part of the transit system? Yes, like I talked to you about uh, the idea of in 2018, uh, you know, where we uh, collaborated with uh, with Modo, with Mobi and BCA's Evo Car Share Program. That pilot was extremely successful and, you know, encouraged by its success, we are thinking of expanding this program. So this year, uh, like you said, the uh, the state of good repair, kind of the theme of uh, of this uh, open call for innovation. Uh, how can people learn more, or and, and how long do people have to get involved in this? Yes. So the deadline this year is September fifteenth, and uh, like I said, during this time, we're inviting all entrepreneurs, businesses, investors, you know, inventors and innovators to submit their proposals. And applicants can visit translink.ca. <clears throat> excuse me. Applicants can visit translink.ca slash open call uh, for details and submission guidelines. And is it bragging rights mainly if your submission is chosen or you have the winning submission or, or what else does somebody get? What can they uh, look forward to if they do have that perfect, that golden idea? Uh, yes, bragging rights for sure. <laughs> and also that their idea will be piloted and perhaps, who knows, be integrated into the system. So I think that's pretty big. Oh, for sure, for sure. Any idea how, how many submissions you're expecting or, or um, based on maybe how many you've had in the past? Um, no idea how many we'll get this year, but uh, based on past successes, like I said, we've had uh, over 400 ideas that were submit, submitted to us across different um, themes. All right. Well, it's uh, very exciting, especially if somebody has been sitting on that idea or thinking, hey, I know what could make this better. If only I could get this idea to the people who need to see it at TransLink. And now they can. Uh, Shruti, thank you yes. so much for joining us. Thanks for so much for being here today. Thank you so much, Jill, for having us. And yes, open call. Please do send us those ideas. Well, it is the Friday of a long weekend, and as you just heard in the traffic report, some of the roads, uh, the major ways, are getting busier as people will be hitting those roads and taking some extended, perhaps, road trips. How do you make sure you are driving safe and your vehicle is operating as well as it can? Whether you're driving a standard vehicle, an RV, maybe you've hitched a trailer to the back of your vehicle and you don't often do that. My next guest is here to offer some tips, and he'll also stick around for your questions. Carl Nado is with us once again, a Michelin driving expert, also a professional race car driver. Carl, thank you so much. So great to have you back on the show. It's an absolute pleasure. (laughs) 
I, I know we talk about this quite often heading into a long weekend, especially though this long weekend, we've had such a long dry spell of weather. Does that make a difference on the roads that we haven't seen much precipitation? Uh, well, usually the road might be a bit more sandy, uh, on, especially on the side of the road. But other than that, it should be uh, pretty good. So uh, the condition should be okay. Now, is the driver and the car in good condition? That's something we need to talk about. Yes. So let's get, to, we'll back it up a little bit. And before you even head out and get on the road, uh, checking the uh, tire pressure. How often should somebody be doing that? We should do it once a month. Uh, it's very, very important because, unfortunately, tires tend to lose a bit of air. And, of course, if there's any problem, if there's a snow leak, a nail in the tire that you haven't seen, it might lose like half a pound a day. And there you go. You're 10, 15 pounds down. Uh, so, yeah, you really need to check once a month. And before a road trip, even if I checked it two weeks ago, I double check again just to be sure. Hmm. And the pressure itself, is it specifically what it says on the side of the tire or how do you know what your tire pressure should be at? You, you got to trust the car manufacturer. Like when you open the driver's side door, there's always a sticker there that says uh, the size of the tires because sometimes in, in the same car, they might be two different size of tires, like let's say a 17 inches wheel or an 18 inches. So you make sure you choose the right one and it's going to give you the front and rear tire pressure, which are pretty often different. All you have to do now is double check. The good news is with technology now, there's a lot of very inexpensive uh, digital tire gauge. So most of the time, we don't have to go with the old school tire gauge where you, you push on it on the valve, you, you kind of pops, and then you see the, the PSI number. Now there's more precise gauges that are sold for very, very cheap. All right. Same for compressors, by the way. Hmm, interesting. I still have one of those. I keep it in the car, but maybe it's time to upgrade from the, the old school tire gauge. <laughs> well, if it works, it works. But uh, when it's time to renew it, I, I like to go digital. It's it's very precise, especially if the, the tires are overinflated. It's easy just to gently push so you, you hear uh, the, the hissing noise of the air getting out of the tire. And then you can double check, double check until you hit the right pressure. So, yeah, I like digital. What are some of the issues or the concerns if a tire is either underinflated or overinflated? Well, first of all, it's, it, it makes the, the car harder to drive because it's going to cause imprecision. If the, car, if the tires are underinflated, uh, the steering wheel will feel kind of mushy. Like the, the input you give to the steering wheel, uh, you're not going to feel them uh, with the car moving left or right as you, you, you're trying to steer in the right direction. And unfortunately, with underinflated tires, the, the side of the tire, like the left side and the right side of the tire, will wear uh, quicker. If it's overinflated, meaning there's too much air in the tire, it's the middle of the tire that will wear quickly. And unfortunately, not all the, the tire compact, uh, contact patch will touch the ground. So if the center of the tire uh, makes contact with the road and it's only the center, unfortunately, if you need to brake in emergency or if you need to steer, uh, you're not going to get the full potential out of the tire. 
Hmm. And uh, I know we're talking a lot about tires here, but I'm curious as well, because checking the pressure is pretty easy. You can do that yourself. You can do that when you're at a, a gas station, a service station, uh, or even uh, at your house, like you said, if you have a compressor and that uh, those uh, have come down in price. Rotating the tires is a bit more labor intensive, but how often should people be doing that? Well, uh, it, it all depends on the car because, unfortunately, there's a lot of vehicles that have uh, tires that we call staggered, mean, meaning that the rear tires are wider than the front tire. So, unfortunately, most of the time you cannot do rotation. At least you cannot do front and back. And there's also directional tires, tires that need to point in one direction. So, on on a bunch of cars, you cannot do rotation. Unfortunately, you get a... You, you let it wear and you change it when it's time. If you're lucky and you have four identical tires, they're not directional, they're easy to rotate. I suggest to do it every like 10,000 kilometers. So that, that's going to even the wear quite a bit. And on some vehicle like uh, Jeeps, for instance, are notorious uh, to wear the tires uh, a bit unevenly, like in, uh, we call it in stairs, like, it, it, like little bumps on the tires. So if you rotate them more often, it's going to reduce that tendency, protect your tires and make them last longer. I know there is also something called the dime trick. When we're talking about tire tread and depth, nobody wants to be out on the roads uh, with bald tires. What is that all about? The good news is you don't need to be a mechanic. All you need is a simple uh, quarter on the, between your, your thumb and forefinger. So you look at the grooves of your tires you try to find the spot on the tire where the groove looked uh, thinner with less depth, and you put the, the, the quarter with the head upside down. And basically, if the top of the figurehead is covered by tread, it's all good. You're driving with legal, safe amount of, of tread. Unfortunately, if you see the, the, the figurehead completely, uh, the tires are basically the potential of the tire is greatly reduced uh, because if there's not enough tread, it's very hard for the tires to take the water off, basically, because there's the asphalt, there's water, there's your tire. If the tread is not deep enough, there's hydroplaning. So basically, your car is going to lift over the water, and it's just like uh, doing... Skiing, a water ski behind a boat, like your 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 car will do exactly the same. And if it happens, I can tell you one thing: avoid trying to steer abru- abruptly left or right, because your tires basically are are lifted off the road. So the last thing you want is to upset the balance of the car. So you need to steer straight. Be very, very gentle with the steering wheel and try to gradually reduce the speed. And it it needs to be smooth in order to be safe. And at some point, with the car like scrubbing speed enough, the tire will be able to cope with the amount of water on on the road and your car will touch the road again. Well, the phone lines are open. If you have a question for our guest, that is Carl Nado. He is a Michelin driving expert, also a professional race car driver. And star 9898-604-280-9898 if you have a question for Carl. Carl, thank you so much for doing this. We spent a lot of time there talking about tires. And I know uh, you are with Michelin, so I'm guessing the question will probably be a Michelin tire. But I am curious. People will often go for the least expensive tires if you don't want to spend a whole lot but does it make a big difference the type of tire you have on your vehicle 
Yeah, the difference is absolutely huge. And I'm, I'm always surprised to see people spend ton of money on the morning coffee on the road and stuff like that. But cheap out on tires like for me it doesn't make sense like we're buying sometimes really expensive and beautiful car and suvs are super popular they have all traction and stability control and everything but the only thing that really keeps it on the road is the tire itself so yeah i strongly suggest everybody to get good tires and with higher hand product there's a lot more research and development invested in the tire and the product because it's it's a lot more than a, a black donut that that's on the wheel of our cars like the the rubber compound of the tire is extremely important for grip uh, for longevity of the tire uh, the way it's going to react to uh, really warm uh, weather uh, so it, it, and there's a lot of effects on the sidewall of the tire. It's, it's got to react precisely uh, to, to, to driver input, but it's, it's, it has to do a lot more than that. If you, if you hit a, a bump or a hole on the road and, and it's, it's, it gives a really hard shot on the tire, the tire needs to be strong to withstand that. So there's so much that goes. And the more I visit tire factory, the more I understand and I learn all important high-quality tires on, our, uh, on a car. And, and sometimes, some, sometimes people think that they're making a good deal with buying a, a tire that's really cheap. Unfortunately, it's not going to last as long. So if you change it every two or three years instead of four, five, six years, it makes a huge difference on the wallet. So I'm I'm a, a a firm believer in buy something good so you don't have to buy it twice. That makes a lot of sense. Now I know you again a professional race car driver, so it's not like you would be hitching a trailer or hauling anything on at the back of a of a race car. But how <laughs> how big of a difference? What difference is it when you're safe? You're not used to driving an RV, or you now you suddenly have a trailer at the back hooked to the back of your vehicle. How does that change kind of the tire performance? Well, it, it changed a lot because it, it's the the weight of the trailer on on the hitch itself uh, changes the behavior of the car. So it's very important uh, that when when you're putting stuff in your trailer that uh, you make sure that the, the balance of the car stays right. So meaning you're not putting all the heavy stuff on the front of, or the of the trailer or on the back of the trailer. You're trying to center the weight as much as you can to avoid like a, a pendulum or a wobble effect of the trailer behind the car because when it starts to go left and right and left and right it's very hard to control and avoid a crash uh, there's something else also most of the time we don't use our traders that often like i i own a trader i carry a bunch of stuff around with it but uh, i check tire pressure every time i leave the driveway with my trailer i never skip one beat so that's something that Basically, on the car, you're feeling it on the steering wheel uh, if, if it's loose. But on the trailer, it's a bit harder to feel it inside the car. So might as well be safe and check it. And there's something else with the trailer. It, it doesn't move much. So most of the time, it sits on your driveway. So one side of the trailer will mostly get all the sun rays. So you have to be sure that you're checking the tires uh, on your trailer for cracks, uh, for anything that looks suspicious before you actually hit the road. And when you're driving, when you take a sharp corner, 
a lot of people have a, a tendency to forget that the front wheel of a car and the back wheel of the car don't follow the same trajectory. Meaning if I crank the, my wheel all the way left and I go forward, if the front clears, that doesn't mean that the back of the car is going to clear. So now add a trailer behind it. So avoid sharp corner without paying attention in your mirror if the trailer clears or not. All right, that is good advice. We have some calls with questions. Let's go right to the phones. And Greg in Surrey, what's your question? Hi, thanks for taking my call. I'm just curious to know what the big difference is between uh, the tires with the M&S and Snowflake Insignia and a uh, full winter tire, as a lot of uh, light trucks and SUVs now come with the M&S tire. That's a great question because it can be very, very, very confusing. Uh, the, when you get the, the mountain snowflake uh, uh, sign on your tires, it means that the tire passed a basic test uh, for, to be uh, basically certified as a winter tire. So that means it's better than an all-season tire, uh, but it's not a full-blown uh, winter tires. So the the problem with with uh, the 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 snowflake, especially on on tires that can that are uh, basically all season certified for win- winter, it's re- usually pretty good uh, with light snow and temperature, not too cold, so it behaves really good. But when you get to harsh winter condition, like we can get in Canada, especially you're close to the mountain, so you get minus 20, minus 30, you get tons of snow, then you absolutely need a real winter tire, not just a certified winter tire in order to get the maximum performance. Uh, that tire, a full winter tire, will not be as, well, it's not going to be good period in summer. Uh, it's, it's a tire that's, that's built to withstand the harsh winter condition we get in Canada. So I, I personally, I never compromise on that. I get good all-season tire for uh, for autumn, spring, summer. It's perfect. But when I get to winter season, it's 100% winter tires that I'm using on every car we have. All right. We only have a little over a minute left. So, Cal, what's your question? Well, actually, I had a couple of comments after retiring from the tire business after 35 years. Carl's comments are great. Um, There are a couple of things that consumers would come in all the time and say, you know, I uh, have my tire set at 44 because that's what's on the side of the tire. And a lot of people don't realize that the proper tire inflation is posted on their doorpost on a sticker. Um, and, And it shouldn't be what's on the side of the tire. That's one point. The other one was had to do with legal tread. Uh, limits. Um, you know, people would come in and say, my car is all over the road. There must be something wrong with my car. I'm, I'm above the legal tread limit. But a lot of people don't realize that you don't have to wear your tires right down to the legal minimum if you're not comfortable with the way the car handles with uh, the tire tread. And, uh, you know, it's, it's up to consumers to kind of use uh, common sense when it comes to weather conditions and, and whether they just like the feel of the uh, of the uh, the tires on their vehicle because you don't have to wear them right out before you replace them. All right, Cal, thank you. Thank you for that. Carl, we are almost out of time, so I wanted to say thank you to you as well. As always, great to chat with you before a long weekend. Thanks so much for coming back on the show. It's always a pleasure, and don't be afraid to take little breaks if you're tired on the road. 
Thanks for listening to the Jill Bennett Show podcast. Can't wait for the latest episode to drop? Tune in to the Jill Bennett Show live from noon till 3 on 980 CKNW. Have a question or comment? Send me an email, jill at cknw.com. Thanks again for listening.